Good, thank you, Ray. Good to be here again, and uh, it's always a joy to come and share amongst you. I did enjoy your little um, welcome to us all at the beginning. You said you were a little horse, and we're straining at the bit. So I thought we're all horses here together this evening. <laughs> That's great. <clears throat> the passage we've got in front of us this evening is Exodus chapter 17 and verses 1 to 7. We'll read that, and then we're going to have a reading from the New Testament as well before we turn back to Exodus. So, first of all, the passage we have before us this evening, Exodus 17, uh, verses 1 to 7. The whole Israelite community set out from the desert of Sin, traveling from place to place as the Lord commanded. They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. So they quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. Moses replied, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? But the people were thirsty for water there, and they grumbled against Moses. They said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to make us and our children and livestock die of thirst? Then Moses cried out to the Lord, What am I to do with these people? They are almost ready to stone me. The Lord answered Moses, Walk on ahead of the people. Take with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile. And go, I will stand there before you by the rock at Horeb. Strike the rock and water will come out of it for the people to drink. So Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel, and he called the place Massah and Meribah, because the Israelites quarreled and because they tested the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Now we'll hold that in our minds, but we're going to turn to John's Gospel, chapter 4. John's Gospel, chapter 4. It's a well-known story of the Lord meeting the lady at the well. And I was just going to read a few verses from the middle of the story, but I think as we've got a little longer this evening, um, we will read the whole of the passage of the Lord's meeting with this lady. So John's Gospel, chapter 4, starting at verse 1, down to verse 26. The Pharisees heard that Jesus was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although, in fact, It was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. When the Lord learned of this, he, uh, sorry, when the Lord learned of this, he left Galilee and went back once more. He left Judea, sorry, and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about the sixth hour. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it was that asks you for a drink, 
you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. <clears throat> Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with. The well is deep. Where can you get this living water? You greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his flocks and herds. Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He said to her, Go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you've had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus declared, Believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for they are the kinds of worshippers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshippers must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know the Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I who speak to you am he. And just a passing thought on that passage. I wasn't intending to read the whole thing. But what an amazing act of grace that the Lord should reveal the greatest definition we have in Scripture as to the character of God to a woman who was basically a prostitute. That's grace. <laughs> an amazing event. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. And that encapsulates the whole of our faith that we worship in the spirit, in a spiritual setting, a God who is spirit. And Jesus, God the Son, came out of that spiritual realm and manifested himself. The word was made flesh and dwelt among us. He returned to the spiritual realms on his ascension. One day he's coming back to take us there as well. Not just as spirits, but bodily into the spiritual, the greater dimension. So the Lord revealed that absolutely astounding definition of who God is to a woman like that. That's, that's what God does. <laughs> and he can do amazing things to any one of us and for any one of us. But to go back to Exodus, uh, I love the stories about the children of Israel on their wilderness journeys. And I was really pleased when I saw that this was the passage before us this evening. Uh, I, I've several times in my ministry I've looked at the whole of the wilderness journeys and drew the parallels between what they went through and what we're going through on our journey, our pilgrimage, our Christian walk. And there are so many rich insights 
through this uh, particular part of scripture. Uh, They were moving from Egypt, which speaks of the world. Uh, They came out of the world, crossing the Red Sea. The Red Sea closed over after them. And as we come out of the world, at whatever point we come to the Lord Jesus, we're coming from the natural worldly position into which we're born and we become part of a God's people, God's appointed people. And uh, the way back to the world closes behind us. I, I know some Christians backslide and have a hankering after the world. But from my experience of dealing with folk that have become Christians, have tasted and known that the Lord is good, and they've slid backwards, they're never happy. You can't really feel a, a peace back in Egypt, in the world, once you've tasted the presence of the Lord and the goodness of God. And, uh, and yet, it's wrong for us to have any theology that suggests that once we've come become Christians and we, become, uh, we, we come to know the Lord now, that it's plain sailing and there's never any problems and we're already in paradise. We're not. It's a lifetime of experience, of learning, of training, of refining, of sanctification. And that's what the journey in the wilderness is showing us in many, many ways, uh, this passage included, right up until the time when they entered into the promised land. Uh, but I'm not going to draw the parallels any more than we, we have before us this evening. This was the early stages of the 40-year journey of the children of Israel. It probably is uh, quite surprising when we consider that there were two, between 2 and 3 million people, as far as we can tell, in this community that Moses was leading through the wilderness. Huge number. If you look at the numbers, the, the mention of, the, of the, the fathers of the family, each with families, with uh, wives and children, uh, we get some idea that there must have been between two and three million people. It was a huge undertaking. It was a massive migration of people. And uh, many of them hardly knew what was happening. They had been told to leave the land of Goshen, the Nile Delta, uh, at the uh, daybreak on the, uh, after the Passover supper and uh, suddenly they are thrown into a situation which for many of them seemed even worse than what they were enduring in Egypt. And so particularly in these early days of their journey there was a great hankering to go back into the past. There was almost that feeling, what have we done? And uh, whenever they could c- complain to Moses, they did. as they did on this occasion. And although God had already showed him his miraculous hand upon them, the crossing of the Red Sea was something else. Uh, And then the bitter waters of Marah, the joy of uh, of, of the oasis of Elam. And now they're starting southwards down the Sinai Peninsula. And again, they're running out of water. And it's not just a few people, it's the animals, their children, crying out for water. They're looking for <laughs> something that is essential to life. And uh, they, they, they weren't sophisticated with the way they expressed themselves. They, they were rebels, as uh, Moses called them at one point, a little later. Uh, they, they, they just immediately made demands and threats and what do you bring us here for? And, and as Moses said, they're ready to stone me. They, they, were, they were a militant bunch, if anyone was. 
But here in this uh, passage, Moses seeks God's help, which is always the right thing to do. God told Moses what he had to do about it. And uh, the result was water from the rock. By the way, I understand that in the Sinai Peninsula, in that part of the Middle East, uh, the mountainous areas, I've traveled right through the Sinai uh, some years ago. We were in Egypt and we went down and spent uh, uh, a night and a day at uh, St. Catherine's Monastery, which is at the foot of the mountain, which is believed to be Mount Sinai. Absolutely incredible experience. Um, but uh, you go, you, you, you travel along, and you're going through a sort of mountainous pass, and it's, it's just like a quarry. It's, it's, there's no, hardly any vegetation or trees. It's just endless rock, sand, stones, and so on, sometimes in the mountains. And then you get to a, a very flat area where they would have been camped. That would have been their camp before they moved on to the next area. And uh, this is uh, what was going on. But in the Sinai Peninsula, so they told us, where you do have these sort of mountainous areas of rocks, many of the rocks are porous. Uh, and from the times when there, there, there is water, the water table isn't way below the level of the lowest point. It rises up in the rocks, in the mountains. Uh, and the mountains do contain water. Sometimes it's very old water, but it contains water. And the Bedouin and people who live in that area, who are very knowledgeable, they know how to tap the rocks, how to hit the rocks, to cause a flow of water to come out where the water table is not far below the surface of the rocks in these mountains. So it's uh, well understood that, these, the, that this is, is quite possible. And uh, the end of the uh, passage that we have, is the Lord among us or not? They're still questioning so what I want to do this evening is, um, is try to draw the parallels with what they experience, with what's going on in our Christian lives now. And the focus here is on what is going on with Moses. And the parallel is what is going on in leadership. Now, I, I didn't choose to bring this passage, so I'm not having a go at any putty here or any particular, oh, certainly not you as a fellowship. But it seems to me there are lessons here in our Christian pilgrimage, in our journey through this life, for those who have leadership responsibility, I include myself in that because we have a fellowship at home. So it's not pointed remarks, it's general remarks, which I feel the scriptures will bear. And there are problems amongst the community of God's people here. They're restless, they're unhappy, they have difficulties. They want water. And in verse 1, we see that they've set out from a previous place, the desert of sin, traveling from place to place as the Lord commanded. They were moving on as God led them. And that is a function of leadership. Moses was the one who was hearing from God and telling people exactly what God had said, what God had commanded. He didn't have a voice that everyone heard. He spoke to Moses. He spoke to the man who was responsible for leading the community. And uh, one of the functions that we have within the church situation as uh, elders, deacons, <laughs> pastors, oversight, it really doesn't matter what we call ourselves, but when there is leading, it's to hear what God is saying so that we have the mind of God first of all. Paul told to the Corinthians, uh, telling them one or two things, he said, but I believe we have the mind of Christ. 
Isn't it lovely when those who are looking after the community of Christians, the community of God's people, are first of all spending time with the Lord to hear the way that the Lord wants his people to move on. And uh, we don't move on according to our traditions or our background or our prejudices. They had no background for what they were doing. This was fresh territory. There's never been this way before. Moses had. He had been trained for the previous 40 years. But as a leader, he was the one that God said, now I want you to lead the people, but listen to me. I'm the one that's going to give you the instructions. And so here in this passage, there's an emphasis on leadership, and it's Moses telling the people what God is commanding them and where they have to go. But as they were moving on, as God had led them, in verse 1, they came to this place called Rephidim where there was no water. So what does the water remind us of in our Christian setting? The water here, and I'm not in any way by drawing the parallels, I'm not trying to explain away the Old Testament uh, and, 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 and say this in an allegory. I really believe this, is, this was historically true. This really happened. But the spiritual lessons are what we are seeking to draw out of it. And the water is what the Lord was offering the woman at the well. Not the water that was in the well, but the water from on high. So what parallel do we see on the water of life? I would suggest that uh, the New Testament makes it abundantly plain that for the Christian, the water of life is both the Word of God and the Spirit of God. It is the, uh, the fullness of what God has for us spiritually. The spiritual refreshment, the nourishment that we need to live. Which is both the knowledge of the word of God and the power of the spirit of God. And you come together and that's what the Lord was offering the woman at the well. That water that meant that she was satisfied with the word, with what the Lord had provided her. And that is the objective of every Christian community, is that we have our sufficiency in Christ. We are satisfied that we have Jesus, that we have his word, the scriptures. We have the spirit of God leading us and guiding us and indwelling us and bringing us spiritual fruitfulness and gifting. We have that water that makes us a different group of people to any other human organization at all. That water of life. That living emphasis that is within our hearts, leading us on, guiding us, and, and, and inspiring us. And it was Moses, the leader, that was called on here to provide the water. The, uh, and and uh, th- th- there's a very real parallel there. In fact, in verse 2, because he hadn't provided it, they turn on him. So they quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. I, as I travel around from church to church and sharing with one or two just now in our own little fellowship at home, even this morning we had a couple come and join us for the first time, came and met with us, and uh, they, they seem to be blessed and whatnot, but they've had a very unhappy set of experiences over the last two or three years in various fellowships in the town they live, it's not Bridgewater. And they're just saying, where's the Lord and where can we find real good fellowship and teaching and so on and so forth? I'm not holding myself up as an example here. I'm just saying this is magnified over and over and over again. 
And I believe Christians are crying out for water in the terms of what is God saying? What, can, we trust, can we trust the word of God? Can we believe it? And church after church, even with evangelical labels, they're not preaching the truth of the word of God. They're compromising it. They're explaining it away. And the people are thirsty. They're thirsty for the water of life. Uh, and again, we're, 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 we have so many Christian activities. We're, yeah, we're well organized and we're happy together, but where's the power? Where's the sense of God's presence? The water that we so desperately crave. And it, it, it seems to me our church is really... By just becoming social centers, I believe we should be engaged in social activity, but not exclusively. And at the heart of it, there is the preaching of the word of God, the teaching of almighty God through scripture, and the application of scripture unto the anointing of the Holy Spirit. And I believe that the church is lacking that altogether today in many, many places. And like these folk, we've got so many folk crying out for water, the water of life that Jesus was offering the woman at the well. <clears throat> and so they're turning on the leader. <laughs> they're turning on the people in, uh, who have responsibility. And so really it's encouraging. I'm not suggesting that this is applicable necessarily here. We're just examining what the scripture says here. Uh, and uh, Moses rightly says in verse 2, he then says, why do you put the Lord to the test? Why quarrel with me? He said, ultimately I'm doing my best for you. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm trying all I can. I'm going exactly where God wants us to go. I followed his command. He's brought us here. So why are you arguing against God? So this is a word for, if you like, the ordinary Christian. <laughs> Again, we hear so much about uh, those in leadership. Yes, they have a responsibility to bear. But, uh, you know, sometimes when we're arguing against them, we're almost arguing against God. It's a responsibility of every individual Christian to get themselves right with the Lord and say, Lord, am I spending enough time in your word? Am I praying enough? Am I, following the, am I letting the Holy Spirit have enough freedom in my, in my life? Yes, it's one thing to ask the, uh, the, the, the leadership in our Christian communities uh, to provide us with water, but are we seeking it ourselves? Is there a sense of... The individual Christian being thirsty for the word of God, or are we satisfied with something far less? Are we just enjoying our holy huddles together? And Moses said, why are you quarreling with me? I'm doing what God has said, so your argument's against him. You better be careful. And uh, maybe, maybe, and again, I'm generalizing, the church in our nation gets the leadership it deserves. And uh, it's for the individual Christians to say, Lord, we want more than what we're having at the moment. We're not satisfied. In fellowship this morning, we were just thinking of, um, for the joy that was set before him, the Lord endured the cross. And we were ex- examining what was that joy that was set before the Lord. <clears throat> and the joy that's set before the Lord, for which... It made it all worthwhile for Jesus to endure the cross and suffer the shame. Was the joy of a relationship with each one of us that gets deeper and deeper as the days go by. So we can honestly say, for he walks with me and he talks with me along life's narrow way. Oh, abide in me, he just yearningly said to his disciples shortly before his crucifixion. 
I, I just want us to have that friendship. I want us to have that relationship. The joy that I have is of individual people who I've... Uh, uh, who, who we, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, have created in God's own image and seen them wander away. And they've now come back and acknowledged Jesus Christ as the way back to God. Uh, and, and they've got a relationship with him that's given them joy. And, and, and that's what the Lord wants, that fellowship with the individual, that we each are individually drawing water from him and saying, yes, Lord, <laughs> thank you who you are. Thank you for the wonder of your love. Thank you for the, the reality of your closeness. Thank you, Lord, that you're with me in every part of my life, in my family life, my church life, my business life, my work life, whatever it is I'm doing. Lord, I want you to become ever more real to me. That's the water of life. That's what is satisfying. That sense of the Lord's presence. And that's what the joy was set before him, to know you and me in such an intimate way. Moses said, yes, all right, you could quarrel with me, but you're quarreling with God, really? Why don't you get right with him? Why don't you get a relationship with him? And then you'll find out what God has got to say for yourselves. Don't expect me to do it all for you. The joy that was set before him. There's another point, and I wasn't going to raise this tonight, but I will. They just mentioned something before me, which makes me feel it's right. When the joy was set, uh, when Jesus, uh, we read that it was for the joy that was set before him. Part of that joy was to have his bride complete. What do we mean by that? It's the totality of the born-again Christians throughout the church age that started on the day of Pentecost and will be complete when we're raptured away. And the Lord is longing for his bride. Like any bridegroom would. He's longing for that moment when he's united with people for whom he died that he loves. And Jesus is longing for that. Oh, as he told us when he was here, it's not his will when he comes back for his church. <laughs> his father's will. I don't know the, time, the day or the hour, he said. It's up to the father. It's in the father's gift. But, even so, but, but, but the bride should be so, so enthusiastic about the coming of the bridegroom of Jesus that we're saying the bride says even so come Lord Jesus come quickly and yet there's a there's a sort of a a complacency in the church there's a complacency amongst ordinary Christians surely the idea of the Lord coming back uh, and then after the marriage supper of the Lamb to rule and reign with him that wonderful millennial reign when this world will be transformed and all the wretchedness that we see around us now will be over and done with. We've already had it tonight in our song, our first song, about David's throne. And that verse was quoted on the screen there. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, the government should be upon his shoulder, be called the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, and he shall reign on David's throne. He won't reign over the United Nations. He won't reign over, certainly won't be in London, and he won't be in, in, in Rome. He'll be in Jerusalem. And he's going to reign on David's throne. And surely if we see the signs of the times, because the Lord says, watch and pray, and when you see these things begin to take place, look up because your redemption is drawing near. Shouldn't there be an excitement amongst Christians? Isn't this water of life? Isn't this our, our enthusiasm? Lord, you, you've put us in days when the signs are, seem to be suggesting your return is very, very close. And Lord, you're going to come back again, first of all, to take us and finish the work of refining us, presenting us to your Father, and then coming back with your bride 
to bring about a, a, a wonderful redemption of this poor world. When the knowledge of the glory of God will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. And Lord, that's, that's our excitement. That's our thrill. Now, where is it today in the church? And it seems that I meet Christian after Christian say, oh, it's too complicated, all this business about the Lord's return. Just let's have a quiet life, please. And I've been quoted that very recently by somebody, <laughs> dear Christian lady, I thought should have known better. But anyway, there we are. Where is the excitement? Where is the messianic fervor amongst the Christians? This is part of the water of life. Moses said, why ask me? Your quarrel is against God. He wants to give you that water of life. But he's going to withhold it from you if you're not interested. Do you know what I've found as I've gone round? Not only is there not a lot of Bible teaching in the church today, in generally, but because we've reduced the amount of teaching to a small minimum, people are losing the appetite for teaching. And people can't take it like they used to. Sadly, you're quarreling with God. Why put the Lord to the test? Verse 3. <clears throat> but the people were thirsty for water there, and they grumbled against Moses. They said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to make us and our children and livestock die of thirst? And there's this hankering back for Egypt. This hankering back. and We've left the world behind. No going back. We shouldn't be hankering after the things of the world. The, the, the things that the Lord has given us in our lives today as we're moving on towards the promised land of our heavenly home and being with the Lord, that, that, that should be so overwhelming to us. We're not interested in the things of this world and, the, and, and all that it means and it's all that's going on. We should be as strangers and foreigners in a, a foreign land. We're going through a wilderness experience as we're looking for the Lord. And yet we're making ourselves very comfortable by bringing as, long, as much of the world along with us as we can. And they're just hankering back. Why did you bring us here? We were better off back where we were. And again, how many people we've seen in Christian circles who have just drifted back into the world and it might have touched your family and mine. And they haven't gone on. There's that reluctance to move on into something they don't see as fulfilling and satisfying. And they're going back to the things of Egypt. Verse 4, Moses' plea with God. Moses cried out to the Lord, what am I to do with these people? They are almost ready to stone me. Well, I think there's been a few church leaders that have thought that from time to time. <laughs> they're almost ready to stone us. But uh, they're, they're, he did the right thing. And so those of us that have got responsibilities amongst the people of God, we have to do the same thing as well. Uh, the trouble is very often, because we come from secular careers and all the rest of it, we try to do the same thing as the world would do. We'll have a meeting about it. We'll have a discussion. We'll send out a questionnaire and so on and so forth. Moses took it straight back to the Lord. And believe that in his position with the responsibility God had given him, the Lord would give him an answer as well. How important it is where those of us in leadership in Christian circles need to spend time with God and take it to him. And our people are just longing for us to exercise that spiritual leadership of being close to the Lord and hearing his voice 
and understanding what he's saying. Moses didn't remonstrate with the people anymore. He heard their grumbles. <laughs> he dodged their stones. And he took it straight back to God. And that's the function of leadership. He didn't try to appease them. He just left them, went straight to the Lord. And then what did the answer come? What was God's answer? Verse 5. The Lord answered Moses, walk on ahead of the people. So he said, look, don't just stick around in the whole mass of them and try to sort of argue it out. I want you to come apart. I want you to just move on ahead. I want you to come to me ahead of the people. Leave them for the moment. They're all right. Just, just come to me. You can take with you some of the elders of Israel. So within leadership, and I do believe in our circles that we represent here tonight, it's right. The plurality of eldership, I think, is absolutely right. It's a, sometimes in other sorts of church structures, everyone leads it to, leaves it to the one person. <laughs> I don't think that's right. Moses, you bring up some of the others I put alongside you to help you. And uh, I, I want you to go ahead of the people. I, I want to deal with you lot first, you, you, your eldership, those of you that are responsible. And I want you to take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. Because he's referring to this rod that was uh, in his hand, and it was a demonstration to Pharaoh that God was all-powerful. And so as in our responsibilities as leaders, we never forget what God has done, the work he's done amongst us. We go back and we take that in our hand and say, Lord, you have blessed us in this way or that way, specifically in the past. Lord, we're holding that. You've blessed us. You've been with us. And Lord, we want you to remember that we're still the same people and we still have the same God. And we now want you to bless us. We're not looking necessarily for a totally new thing. We take the blessings of the past with us. And we say, Lord, we remember what you've done in the past. Verse 6. I will stand there before you by the rock at Horeb. Strike the rock and water will come out of it for the people to drink. Strike the rock. Can I just say reverently, the rock Christ Jesus and I believe the striking there is not a punishment, it's not a torture or anything like that. It's fervency. It, it, it's, it's meaningful. It's something with strength and purpose in it. And, and, and when we find the Lord's people are drifting and, and, and lacking that water of life and their spiritual lives are failing and there's no real power and sense of the Lord's presence, we need to go to the Lord and say, Lord, we are not going to let you go until you bless us. Lord, we want to come to your throne and take it by storm. And that's the sort of prayer that we find time and time again in Scripture. Oh, that the Lord would rend the heavens and come down, says Isaiah. Oh, Lord, that you'd move again. Lord, we are not going to go until you bless us, until you move in power. Are we praying that at the moment in our political life in this nation, as the leaders of God's people? Are we praying daily for what's going on? There's been some incredible things happening, really, in the last few months. <laughs> and it's not all a big accident, a big mistake. God knows exactly what he's doing as he's preparing the nations 
for the return of the Lord, the time of judgment in the nations and what comes out of it afterwards. We're living in momentous days and we need to take hold of the throne of God and say, Lord, bless us and be with us. When my people humble themselves and come in prayer, I will hear them and heal their nation. But are we fervent in prayer or are we just sitting down saying, oh, well, maybe the Lord will do something, maybe he won't. I want you to strike the rock. I want you to come to the place where only, the only place where living water can flow, where there can be the unction of the Holy Spirit that comes through the word. Where's the work of God in the lives of individuals? And don't rest in prayer, (coughs) particularly the leadership here, until you've had an answer from God and his blessing and pouring out a blessing. How often revivals have started with heartfelt prayer that goes on and on and on until God (coughs) moves in mighty ways. Lay hold of God. Strike the rock. Rock Christ Jesus. I'm sure the Lord is wanting us to show that we mean business, that we are in earnest. That's what fasting's all about. It's not trying to make a big impression on other people. It's showing the Lord that we really mean business and that we, uh, you know, we're not happy unless he moves to bless us. And that's really what uh, striking the rock is all about. Strike the rock. Fervent, sincere, persistent, committed. Uh, and... Uh, he, And it was in the sight, Moses did this, says the end of verse 6, in the sight of the elders of Israel. He was a good leader. He said, look, on your behalf, I'm coming to the Lord, I'm doing exactly what he says, I'm going to strike the rock, the water will flow that the people desperately need, and I want you to notice what I'm doing. Of course he did, because amongst those elders, there was uh, um, Joshua, who was going to be uh, the leader after Moses. And the others that took on leadership responsibility as they moved on through the wilderness experience. And finally, verse 7. And he called the place Massa, and Meribah, which means testing and quarreling, because the uh, Israelites quarreled, quarreled, and because they tested the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? And I believe every fellowship, every group of Christians, we have those little sort of markers where to remember them. That's where we, we could have lost it. We, we, we could have really messed up then. But the Lord was gracious. And that's where we remember that we had a bit of a, a, bit of a challenge. A bit of a time when we didn't quite know what God was going to do. But God moved in a mighty way. And God poured out the living water. And there was spiritual refreshment. And anointing of the Holy Spirit. And the Lord changed us and moved us on. And there was a mighty sense of God's glory and presence amongst us. And we remember it. Might have been a name that helped us to remember. That's where we quarreled. <laughs> That's where the Lord tested us. That's where the Lord refined us. We do that personally, don't we? don't know about you, but I do remember. And probably... People that know me better, I tell them ad nauseum. <laughs> That's where the Lord tested me. That's the moment where I had to learn a little more of God's sovereignty, of God's ways, of God's purposes, of God's truth. They're marker posts on the wilderness journey. They're the places that I remember because I put a name to it. That's the place where the Lord tested me. There's the place where the Lord showed me something different. That's where the Lord moved me on. That's the moment when... God dealt with me in some way or other. Mark a post along the way. Good to be reminded of them.
but to remember them when we pass them and the Lord moves us on. Simple little story, but our Christian pathway is much the same as it was of the children of Israel then. May the Lord bless you as we seek to live out these scriptural truths even in our day and in our lives. The Lord bless you. Thank you, mate.